So today's reading you'll find in Luke chapter 2, 1. You'll find it in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to the end of the chapter at verse 80, which you'll find on page 1027 in your Bible, 1027. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. <coughs> and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pippa. Please do keep your Bibles open at that uh, place in Luke, page 1027, the Song of Zechariah. Hopefully, this is working. Yes, good. Um, well, as I'm sure you're all very well aware, Christmas is just around the corner. There are now just 13 shopping days to, until Christmas. In fact, since every day is now a shopping day, there are just 13 days of any description until Christmas. <laughs> we no longer have young children in our family, but I can well remember how, when our kids were kids rather than adults, how the excitement built through these early December days. The advent calendar always came out on December the 1st. We still have the one we've used every Christmas since our first daughter was born more than 30 years ago. It's made of felt, and underneath each day is a small pocket into which Kerry would put one of those tiny bars of Cadbury's milk chocolate. As many of you know, we have three children, so they would take it in turns, day by day, to open the chocolate. It was, if you like, just a small taste of what was to come on Christmas Day, a little present giving a hint of the larger presents they knew were on their way. The chocolate was, in its own small way, sending a message to our children of what they could expect in the future. Well, that's exactly what this section of Luke's Gospel is doing, sending a message of what is to come, a message of hope, a message of redemption, and a message of salvation. It's telling us clearly 
that the best is yet to come. That even as we learn of John's birth, there is a clear signpost to the birth of someone far greater. The birth of Jesus, our Messiah. Before we dig into it, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the way this passage in Luke still speaks to us some 2,000 years after it was written. Allow my words to speak your truth and help us all understand how you want that to impact our lives. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the words we've just had read by Pippa are astonishing in many ways. On a purely human level, they are the outpourings of a man who has just become a father for the first time. I can well remember what that felt like. It is an astonishing feeling to look down at that tiny, helpless baby and know that you have played a part in creating it and that you now have to care for it. But the overwhelming emotion is one of pure love, complete, total and amazing love for this tiny human being. I was in my early 30s when that happened to me, but Zechariah is much older than that. Indeed, he may well have been older than I am now. We aren't told exactly how old, but we know that he and his wife, Elizabeth, had long given up hope of ever becoming parents. That makes the birth of their son, John, both miraculous and even more joyous. Just as incredible was that this prophecy, this song of Zechariah, as is almost the first thing Zechariah says after having been struck dumb more than nine months earlier. He hasn't uttered a word since he told, since he was, he told the angel Gabriel he doubted God would be able to give them the son they had been promised, back in verses 18 to 20. Zechariah's lips are only unsealed after he writes down that his son is to be called John, in verses 63 and 64. From that moment... As it says in verse 64, <coughs> his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. While those first words of praise are not recorded by Luke, Zechariah's song most certainly is in all its dramatic and encouraging beauty. And Luke also makes clear that these words come not from Zechariah as a simple man, but from Zechariah as the mouthpiece of God. That's clear from verse 67. Look at it with me. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So we know that right from the off, that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is instrumental in forming the words Zechariah speaks. These words were chosen by God and were designed for a specific purpose, to be a prophecy of what was to come. The song is divided into two sections. The first, from verses 68 to 75, prophesies the future birth and ministry of Jesus and how he will redeem his people. The second, from verses 76 to 79, prophesies the future of Zechariah's own son, John, who, just like his father, will also be a prophet of God and will prepare the way for Jesus. Now, to my mind, that's a slightly odd way of approaching things. Zechariah speaks first of Jesus, 
who's yet to be born, and then of his own son, John, who has just been born. If that were me, I'd definitely be speaking first of my own son. That would be uppermost in my mind. But of course we have to remember it's the Holy Spirit who's empowering Zechariah at this point. And the Holy Spirit has no doubt that the most significant part of the song is the part about Jesus. The birth and ministry of John, while important, are clearly secondary. So bearing that in mind, let's try to work out what it is that the Holy Spirit wants Luke's readers, both those of 2,000 years ago and those of today, to take away from this passage. I think there are three key messages in this passage. The first is the certainty of God's promises. When God says he will do something, he does it. We have a God we can trust. Second, the certainty of Jesus' power to redeem us. Jesus is the Messiah, and his death pays the price of our sin. He has saved us from the punishment we deserve. Third, Jesus has the power to save all people. This redemption is open to everyone, not just a chosen elite or a small group. Every human being can be redeemed. So let's start by saying just how certain God's promises are. The song starts with the inspiring words of verses 68 to 70. Look at them with me again. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Now, one of the most interesting things here is that Zechariah uses the past tense in a prophecy. I think most of us would think that the future tense would be more appropriate. So it should be, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he will come and redeem his people. He will raise up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And that's even more the case because Jesus, who is the Lord Zechariah speaks of, and who will, as we know, redeem his people, has not yet been born. Never mind completed his ministry on earth. So why then does the Holy Spirit, through Zechariah, speak in the past tense? Well, the reason is that Zechariah can see what will certainly happen in the future. He is speaking from the perspective of one who has already seen what will happen. That is how he can speak about the birth of Jesus in the past tense. We, of course, know that Jesus was born and came into our world. And we'll celebrate that on Christmas Day. It proves the promise was true. The past tense also gives the reader that thrilling sense that this is an event which transcends time. The redemption of his people is something that applies across all time. It covers those who put their trust in God before the birth of Jesus and of those who have put their trust in God since the birth of Jesus. There is no doubt this is a seismic event in world history. Now let's look at the certainty of Jesus' power to redeem. 
The idea of redemption is central to the Song of Zechariah, so it's worth spending some time unpacking just what it means. If you Google the word redeem, you find out that it means to buy back, <coughs> to regain possession of. If you redeem something in a pawn shop, you buy it back from the shop. You sell it to the shop, they take ownership of it, you then buy it back. And this idea of buying back something which has been lost is key to our understanding of Zechariah's words. He is seeing the whole of Jesus' life and ministry, not just his birth. He has seen how Jesus redeems his people, that he gives his life so that his people can regain the freedom they had in the Garden of Eden before sin corrupted them. That his agonising death on the cross is the, pro is the price that must be paid to save his people from the punishment they deserve for turning their backs on God. Indeed, we are twice gods. We were his in the first days of creation, but chose to turn our backs on him. Now God wants to redeem us, to buy us back. And that is exactly what he does through the death of Jesus. Zechariah then picks out two aspects of Jesus' divinity, both of which are key to his redemptive power. The first is his capacity to save us from our enemies, from all who hate us. As Zechariah puts it, Jesus is a horn of salvation. That reference to horn indicates strength. The horn is the strongest part of an, any animal with horns. You need only think of a rhinoceros to see the truth of that. So Jesus is strong enough to save everyone from anything. There is here both an understanding that his salvation applies immediately, that we will be saved from any earthly enemies we might have, and also eternally, that he can save us from the punishment our sin truly deserves. And we are saved so that, as Zechariah says in verses 74 and 75, we are able to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Incredibly, while we are still sinners, we can be both holy and right with God. Now that has nothing to do with anything that we might be able to do, but everything to do with what Jesus has already done. He has paid the price our sin deserves, so we are made right with God. It's remarkable, isn't it? The second aspect of Jesus' divinity is the fact that he is from the house of his servant David, which fulfills earlier prophecies from, as Zechariah puts it in verse 70, long ago. As we know, Jesus' ancestry is traced back to David through his mother Mary and through his adoptive father Joseph. In the birth of Jesus, God has acted to fulfil the promises made in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from the house of David. He also fulfils the promises made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Have a look at this promises, promise in Genesis 22, just after Abraham has been willing to sacrifice his own son Isaac. It's Genesis 22, 17-18, when the angel of the Lord tells Abraham... I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession 
of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. As we all know, Jesus' ancestry goes back through David to Abraham in the genealogies of both Luke and Matthew. <coughs> through the words of Zechariah, Luke could not be making it any clearer to his readers that Jesus fulfills the promises of God made in the Old Testament, that he really is the Messiah able to redeem his people. From verse 76, the focus in Zechariah's song switches from Jesus to his own son, John. There's great tenderness in the way that's done when Zechariah says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. But Zechariah makes it clear that his son will be a prophet of someone more important. He will be a prophet of the Most High. Back in verse 32, Luke records the angel telling Mary that her child, Jesus, will be called the Son of the Most High. The distinction is clear. Jesus is the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. John is a prophet of the Most High, a prophet of God. He's been appointed by God to tell people about Jesus. That's his calling, his ministry, his life's work. Zechariah sums it up in just a couple of verses, what, exactly what that will entail. Look again at verses 76 into 78. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That's a beautifully succinct presentation of the gospel, isn't it? What will John have to tell his people? That Jesus will come and offer salvation by forgiving their sins because God is merciful. From there, Zechariah switches the focus back to Jesus. And we reveal our third message, that Jesus has the power to save everyone, not just the people of Israel. Verse 78 makes it plain that this redemptive power is open to everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. Look at it again with me. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Jesus clearly is the rising sun. The pun on sun, S-U-N, and sun, S-O-N, only works in English. But Jesus is very definitely both. He comes from heaven, and his light is the sun that will shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death. Who are those people living in darkness and the shadow of death? Well, they were and are the people who do not know Jesus, who do not accept that he alone has the power to forgive sin and triumph over death. There's a clear reference here to the power of Jesus to conquer death. Oh, sorry. Um... Yeah, as his resurrection proves. Of course, that's all in the future for Jesus. And just as this prophecy makes clear, doesn't happen until after John 
has prepared the way for him. So what should be the impact of Zechariah's song on us? How do you think it should affect you? Well, if you're not yet a Christian, or still exploring the claims of Christ, I think you can see from this passage that God keeps his promises. He's trustworthy. When he says the Messiah will come from the line of David, the Messiah comes from the line of David. When Zechariah says he has redeemed his people, we can be sure he has redeemed his people. If you carry on reading the Gospel of Luke, you will see that everything that is prophesied here proves true. John does act as a prophet of God, preparing the way for Jesus. Famously telling his eager audience in Luke 3.16, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that, of course, is exactly what Jesus did. Yes, this passage proves clear evidence that God is trustworthy and that you can place your faith in him, confident in the redemption Jesus offers. And that is true whether you are young or old, whether you have a full head of hair or as bald as a coot, whether you are at university or picking up your pension. Just as for those eager children in the run-up to Christmas, Zechariah here gives us a glimpse of the future of what Jesus can and will do. He doesn't spell out the whole process of redemption or the fact that Jesus will have to die an agonizing death on a cross before being resurrected. But he does make it clear how powerful Jesus is, that he is the Lord, the God of Israel. If you are a Christian, then you can take powerful reassurance from these words. Just as Zechariah could prophesy in the past tense, so you can be utterly certain of your future. Even if Christmas is not the time of year you particularly enjoy, or which brings back unhappy memories, you can be assured that your future is guaranteed by the sacrifice Jesus made. Nothing can separate you from that. We are able to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, for all our days, because he has defeated our enemies. In the run-up to Christmas, it's tempting to see Jesus only as a tiny newborn baby, utterly dependent on others to provide for him. While that's true, Zechariah gives us another view of Jesus not as a helpless babe, but as an all-powerful king who has the power and authority to save all of us. We can trust him, we can rely on him, and we can be utterly certain that his power to redeem our sins through his death and resurrection is sufficient to save us, provided we put our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the all-powerful Jesus. We thank you that he has the power of salvation, that he has conquered our enemies and that his light shines upon us. Help us to have that confidence as we speak of you to our friends and family this Christmas. 
Help us to show people you are much more than a babe in arms. In your name. Amen. Amen.